Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650s, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Westminster Abbey is a flagship institution. It's right there at the centre of national life in this country. Westminster Abbey is the coronation church. The Abbey has been the place where people commemorate the great men and women of our history. Here was the origins of Parliament. I think of the Abbey as being an upbeat place. The most unusual phone call was from Michelle Obama's Secret Service. On a standard day, we would probably process a thousand people per hour. Even though we are a massive tourist attraction, we still are very much a living church. Westminster Strabby represents faith at the heart of the nation. To think that there have been people with their eyes turned in the same direction towards worship of God in this place for over a thousand years. There's a feeling of a really Rolls-Royce musical setup here. Being the Queen's choristers, we really can't afford to let her down. Quite a lot I see people crying. When you sing, it brings tears of joy and sadness. I do wake up every day and think this is a fantastic place to be. It's a thrill even after 17 years. You believe you've got that to look after. There's that tremendous sense of being part of something that goes back all those hundreds of years. It's a magnificent building. I feel like I'm part of history just being here. Westminster Abbey has stood by the banks of the River Thames in London since the Middle Ages and follows a cycle of worship with traditions that stretch back to the birth of Christianity. For the community who live and work here, upholding these traditions and maintaining the quality of worship is their driving force. Being in the Abbey early in the day is a marvellous experience. There's a feeling of calm and peacefulness and a real sense of prayer and you capture the essence of 900 years of worship in this place. So it's, it's a great privilege to be here early in the day but I have to do the washing up and tidy up some books for morning prayer and then I'll have some breakfast. For over 160 years Westminster Abbey has run a small boarding school for around 30 boys between the ages of 8 and 13 who live full-time within the Abbey grounds. They all have two instrumental practices a day and this first one's done all together after breakfast before going over to song school. And then the second practice we timetable during the course of the day, so there are just five or six boys practicing with the director of music. But at this point, yes, they're practicing in every nook and cranny, um, hence the cacophony of sound. Good morning, Form 2. Okay, can you go and get your books, please? Between 9.30 and 3.30, the boys here study like any other school children. This is the Form 1 classroom at the moment. We're just looking at um, the different parts that make up the UK. So at the moment, we're concentrating on the different flags and how they go together to make up the Union Jack. 
and also how the Wales flag isn't represented, which we all thought was a bit unfair because the Welsh dragon is the most exciting flag we've decided overall. The reason the boys are here is that they've been chosen to sing in the Abbey's world-famous choir. The Abbey started as a Benedictine monastery, um, and it goes back to the first millennium, in fact. Um, nobody knows exactly when a monastic community first began here, but it, it goes back certainly beyond 960. And the rhythm of our life now is very similar to the monastic rhythm, which was based on the monks coming to sing, and they, they sang, they didn't say things. So there's a feeling of the, the same kind of daily rhythm of work going on. Let's do some of these to a lip trill with an, uh, an R or something. Every year, there are over 1,500 services at Westminster Abbey, and every week in term time, eight of them are sung by the choir. Being a chorister of Westminster Abbey is a bit like being part of a huge family with 31 boys because we're all so close. It's amazing singing in the Abbey when, when people have sung here for years and years and years and it's carrying on a legacy that it's very daunting. Good. Just listen. Westminster Abbey is a flagship institution because of its position. It's, it's in London, it's right next to the Houses of Parliament. After all, it's, it's right there at the kind of centre of public life, national life in this country. And the music of the Abbey is part of the main mission of the Abbey, as we call it, which is worship. Maintaining that rhythm, that continuity, at the highest level that we can is our responsibility, and specifically mine as director of music. It's a fantastic place to work. You know, every day is different. You come in, you don't know what you're going to do. I can't plan a day. Fifteen full-time staff have the formidable task of maintaining this historic monument. Early in the morning, this time of year, you might get uh, severe frost. The lead can be very slippery, so you might have to wait until the sun comes up because it, it would be like a skating rink up here. If it gets blocked up, then it overflows inside the building and then we can get quite a bit of damage on the stonework. Any of the terrific ceilings we've got here can be quite badly damaged, you know. At the moment, we're on Henry VII's chapel roof and at this time of year, it's not too bad. It's not a lot of rubbish at the moment, but in the autumn, you get a lot of leaves from all the plane trees that are around here. You get an awful lot of rubbish for most of the year from those, and it's a non-stop job. Like thousands of churches across the world, the Abbey follows a daily pattern of worship which reflects the Christian belief that Christ suffered, died and rose from the dead to give eternal life to those who believe in him. Let's pray for the life and work of the Abbey. Amen. Amen. The Abbey is governed by a body called the Dean and Chapter, made up of five senior clergy and a lay executive. The Dean and spiritual leader is the very reverend Dr John Hall. We live in a curious way in a place like this, with linear development, uh, but also with cyclical or circular development. Every day has its round of worship. Every week has its round of worship on Friday, we remember the Passion of our Lord every Friday. And on Sunday, we remember the Resurrection of the Lord every Sunday. So it has that round effect during the course of a week and during the course of a year. Today is the Feast of Candlemas, which marks the end of Christmas and the start of a new season in the Christian calendar. This is the Dean's Cloth of Gold Cope. Um, it's the best cope that uh, we have. and. Um, we have gold uh, for festival days, and today's Candlemas, which represents the last uh, official day of Christmas when Christ was presented in the temple. And it was made uh, especially for our Dean because he's well over six foot tall, and some of our other copes don't quite fit him very well. Candlemas is a, is a lovely service in itself, I always feel, where you, you light candles and think of, uh, of, of the light of Christ shining in the darkness. What we actually are remembering, though, is the presentation of Christ in the temple 
40 days after his birth. So it's the 2nd of February is 40 days after the 25th of December. And it's, in a sense, the culmination of our remembrance of uh, Christmas time. We probably get about sort of 200, 200 to 300. But the trouble is with services like this, it's very unknown. So it's always better to cater for more than less. One of the joys of being a church musician is being aware of the changing seasons of the church's year and the fact that there's a personality to them. So the personality of Candlemas as the slightly poignant end of the Christmas season technically and also the beginning of Lent where things change quite dramatically, that's a rather nice thing to, to be aware of and I think to capture. It's, it's very nice, it's like the changing seasons of autumn becoming winter and winter becoming spring and in a sense this is the church's equivalent of that. Can you find the um, Candlemas sheet now? This, have you done any of this yet? Okay, so page one. Who'd like to go intoning this? Andrew. is an ancient feast when traditionally beeswax candles were blessed for the coming year. The daily services at Westminster Abbey are open to the public. At this one, the congregation gathers in the dark by the Great West Door to wait for the blessing. It's the end of the Christmas period, and now we turn away from Christmas and we're beginning to face towards the next great moment in the church's year, which is uh, Lent and Easter. As well as being the Abbey's spiritual head, the Dean is also responsible for a world heritage site whose buildings need constant attention. Architect Ptolemy Dean has just been appointed the new surveyor of the fabric, the man in charge of upkeep. One of the things that's really immediately apparent when you suddenly take responsibility for these buildings is the scale of them. Look at the scale of it. Acres and acres of lead roof. So it's, a, it, it's an incredible task and a huge responsibility just to keep the building going. Um, well, I've never stood here before, but turn your head and look at what beholds the Westminster Abbey. You believe you've got that to look after. One of the things I've got to do, actually, is the quinquennial survey. That's a really big task. That's the condition of the building, and it's carried out every five years, hence quinquennial. And, uh, I'm really looking forward to it, actually, because it means you have to go over every single bit of the building and work out what needs to be done. And, uh, I mean, for instance, look at this. This is a classic bit of cement. You botched on to keep the profile of the mullion, but it's so hard. You know, it's so impervable. And it's just it's in poor quality repairs, particularly of the mid-20th century. I mean, they were so excited about using modern materials to repair old buildings, of course, they didn't realise that these modern materials were completely incompatible chemically and minerally. And, of course, the reason why it comes off in one's hand is because the moisture has got behind the cement and just trapped and therefore broken down the surface of the softer zone underneath. The first person to hold the post of surveyor of the fabric here was Sir Christopher Wren, who built St Paul's Cathedral. Sorry, have you got anything to wear? <laughs> you have actually got something. I have got the robes. Following in Wren's august footsteps, Ptolemy Dean is about to be installed as the 19th surveyor and is preparing for a ceremony dating back to the 16th century and the reign of Elizabeth I. 
it culminates in the dean giving him his own seat in the choir stalls. Mr Dean, I present to you Ptolemy Dean to be admitted and installed as surveyor of the fabric of this collegiate church. And then I'll say, the ancient and distinguished officer of surveyor of the fabric, to which you, Ptolemy, have been appointed, comes with great privilege and responsibility. It is your duty to care for the fabric and ornaments of this abbey, so that these stones may speak to all of the beauty of God's holiness. Are you willing to accept these duties? To which you and answer. You say, I am and will perform them by the help of God. Excellent. And then I say, right here, uh, I, John Robert Hall, Dean of this college, admit you, Ptolemy Dean, etc., to the office of Surveyor the Fabric, and place you in the stall assigned to you in the choir in the name of the Father and Son. Do I say that here, or do I take you up first? Can we take him up first? I think I take you up first. I think I take you by the hand and lead you, and you turn round. It's all right, it's perfect. No, no, turn round. No, no. Come back. <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to be a bit like a dosey do. Um, if you, work, if you take the right hand, yes. and if you, you, but you turn back, you turn back, and then I, oh, and then I push you forward. Oh, okay. And you walk oh, forward. Go on. Okay, go on. Walk and forward. you walk up. That's it. I, John Robert Hall, Dean of this college, admit you, Ptolemy Dean, to the office of Surveyor of the Fabric and place you in the stall assigned to inquire in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. It's a wonderful privilege to be here and uh, it is, like all privilege, you don't want to mess it up. And you realise you're adding on to something that is absolutely in the forefront of the sort of national identity. It's something that everybody's looking at, watching all the time. It's a daunting privilege. Ptolemy Dean has taken a vow which harks back to monastic times, when Dunstan, a future Archbishop of Canterbury, founded a monastery here. His community lived by the rule of Saint Benedict, who founded a religious order in Italy in the sixth century. When King Edward came to the throne in 1043, he couldn't leave his turbulent kingdom to pay homage to the Pope in Rome. So the Pope ordered him to build a church to St. Peter, the founder of the Catholic Church. Edward chose to build it on the site of Dunstan's monastery by the Thames. It's one of the wonderful things about the history of Westminster Abbey is Edward the Confessor, who's our saint and who's here. And he, of course he was King of England until 1066. And he rebuilt the Abbey glorious Romanesque building, the biggest building in the land, I should have thought at the time, as well as building his palace here. So he lived here beside the abbey, rebuilt the abbey, brought more monks here, so it was a very great and wonderful building. And church buttressing state, state buttressing church, no doubt church challenging state, state challenging church, but here together at the heart of our national life. And that's how it always has been since the 11th century. 200 years later, in honour of Edward the Confessor, Henry III rebuilt the abbey, and much of the building we see today dates from his reign. At the heart of the complex is the Chapter House, which has a remarkable place in British history. The abbey's archaeologist, Professor Warwick Rodwell, has spent many years studying it. The chapter house at Westminster is unique um, and unlike any other chapter house uh, in, in an abbey because this served two roles. Uh, it wasn't just the place where the abbot and monks met every day, which is what a chapter house is for, it's the meeting room of the abbey. It was also a meeting room for the king and the king held his council here uh, and he began to build this uh, probably in 1249. Um, it was finished by about 1253 and thereafter it began to serve as a chamber in which the king's council met. And so here was the origins of parliament. This is the place where the, uh, what we call today the House of Commons first began to meet um, under the king in the, the 1250s. And the king or the abbot would have taken up his position here um, in the centre facing west ready to address um, his audience, or in the case of the abbot, address the monks. The 
architecture all around us on a day like this with the sun coming in, lighting up the wall paintings on all the sides around and imagine it not in its muted state that it is today, but everything glowing and sparkling uh, with paint and gilding and tapestry and it is one of the great architectural wonders of Europe. By the time of Henry VIII, the business of Parliament had outgrown the Abbey and had moved to the Palace of Westminster. Henry's reign proved to be a cataclysmic time for the Catholic Church. When the Pope wouldn't grant him a divorce, Henry broke with Rome in 1534. He made himself the head of the church in England and ordered the destruction of Catholic monasteries. Henry spared Westminster Abbey because so many of his ancestors had been crowned and buried here. His daughter, the Anglican Elizabeth I, supported the Abbey's unique status, and since 1560, a dean, a Church of England cleric, has been in charge. This is the long gallery, uh, the deanery, uh, which was built as, in the 14th century originally, although there was a, a fire in 1941, so some of it has been rebuilt. But this is where the abbots of Westminster lived, and since 1560, it's been the home of the deans of Westminster. I'm the 38th dean. And one of the earliest of them is Gabriel Goodman, uh, who's here. He came from Ruthin in North Wales, and he was dean through most of the reign of Queen Elizabeth I. So he was the first person to be appointed dean who'd not actually been a monk here beforehand. And he was very close to the Queen's uh, private secretary, the Cecil family, and so he was certainly an advisor and consultant to the Queen. And it's, it's lovely for me having so many of my predecessors around, they give me a sense of, of the extraordinary history of the place and, uh, and my small role in it here at, early in the 21st century. The ties between the monarchy and the abbey went so deep that in 1560, Elizabeth I refounded the abbey as the Collegiate Church of St. Peter and Royal Peculiar. But it means in, in, in various ways that, that I'm not responsible to any bishop or archbishop. That's, that's the first thing. Most, most uh, parts of the Church of England obviously owe their allegiance to their diocesan bishop and through their diocesan bishop to the archbishop. But, uh, but the abbey is a royal peculiar and it's outside the diocesan structure. It's outside the provincial structure of bishops and archbishops. So essentially I'm the spiritual and uh, moral leader of, uh, of the abbey community. And, uh, answer to the Queen. Five centuries after Elizabeth I granted this unusual status, there's some unfinished business between the Abbey and the Crown. These are the statutes which have um, just been given to the Dean and Chapter by the Queen. They are, as it were, the bylaws or the constitution by which the Abbey is to be governed. And um, the reason that we've been given them now is that when Queen Elizabeth I established the Abbey as a collegiate church in 1560, she did that by producing a charter which laid out the type of foundation that she wanted there to be here. Um, that charter said that there would be statutes which would lay out in much more detail how the Abbey was to be governed. Um, those statutes were drafted, but they were never signed by Elizabeth I, and so they've never actually had legal, um, legal validity. And um, this has been an issue for the Abbey over the centuries from time to time. And finally, here at the beginning of the 21st century, we have had statutes um, presented by the monarch. Then at the bottom, there's this huge great seal, which represents the Queen's signature, which gives them the authority and means that they are legal and valid statutes. This document is the latest addition to the Abbey's archives, which date back to the founding of the monastery here by St Dunstan over a thousand years ago. This is an example of one of our earliest charters. It dates from uh, around 962. It's a grant from King Edgar, who's named here, giving land to the monastery in the very early days of its foundation. And among the witnesses who've signed at the bottom is uh, Dunstan, Archbishop of Canterbury. So we have this extraordinary range of documents from over a thousand years ago, right up to the present day. Okay, just volo sacrificium. 
So it comes away from the accent and then back to the next one. Tomorrow's Ash Wednesday, and that means that as part of the Mass, when the congregation are ashed, when they receive a, a cross of, of ashes on their, on their head, we sing the Miserere by Allegri. Um, it's been sung for, for generations. In the Vatican, it was, used to be a secret piece that nobody was allowed to transcribe. Um, but modern editions have been made in the last um, kind of half a century, and it's become a real sort of contemporary classic. Um, no doubt because it has this very distinctive high C sung by a solo treble over and over again, several times in the course of the piece. So that inevitably becomes a focus for the boys especially, because it's very exciting for them. Try to downplay that, but it's really impossible to repress that. Every week there's about sort of three solos that come up in, in canticles, and, but um, the Allegri solo is quite special, so that's, that's the sort of tough com competition between all of us. The choristers perform with 12 professional singers called lay vicars. Every year on Ash Wednesday, two men and two boys are chosen to sing in a quartet in the musical centerpiece of the service. To decide who will get the coveted high solo part, the music staff have to run a selection process. Let's have a look at page four. Amplius. Okay, let's hear, let's hear um, Andrew on the top line and Matthew on the second line down for this. Here we go now. I think the difficulty with singing this piece in, in the composition is that every year we do this piece and so it gets, you try and improve from the year before and this year I think we're trying to do it better than we did last year and last year we're trying to do it better than the year before. If you want to be doing um, the Allegri you need confidence um, and a high voice, yes. I'm hoping to get the solo, I'm hoping to be the top part, you know, it's quite high. I'm hoping I'm going to get it while well, I'm in contention with Matthew. So, so it's just really up to the choir master. Just let it flow on there, please. And. No, that's. That's not coming out, is it? Andrew's terribly keen to do it. Um, and he's so keen that when we've run through it in the rehearsals, um, he's doing something. I think what he's doing is just stopping the air flowing through his voice. And so the notes don't come out. Um, and that becomes a vicious cycle for a singer. If they stop the air flowing um, and the, the voice stutters a bit, then a, a boy who is not as experienced as an adult singer at countering this, will tend to tense up even more and that stops the air flowing even, even more, it becomes even more of a problem. Now, I'd like to hear Bede and Luciano, please. And... Right, so Bede, you were late going up to the sea as well. A little bit more counting is needed in your case, but it's very good. I think let's send off then Andrew and Ben and Bede and Hugh and Matthew and Luciano off to uh, rehearse with Mr Ford. We're going next door to rehearse more of the Allegri solo um, where a few boys try out and then we all learn it, the solo and then whoever sounds the best we uh, choose for the solo. Let's try everybody just so we get the sense of the words and then we'll split you up um, in a minute. So let's try to start with everybody. So Once they've mastered the Latin words, the boys are divided into pairs to sing the high and low solo lines. Make 
make sure you're lifting a little bit more on those dotted boats. And that's what, what bar is it? About the fourth bar, top, top of that line. A little bit more lifting there, because if you're going to be up in the organ loft to make it clear downstairs, we need to really overemphasize things. So a little bit more lifting there. Just once more, we'll carry on this time. Same thing. And... It's just mainly the high part, getting that top C. Um, if you're, like, um, older than the younger boys, it's going to be harder for you, because your voice is nearer to the breaking point. You need to be aware that you're not locking your door. Because sometimes if you get if you get nervous you lock your door and the sound gets sort of jammed inside your throat and then it comes out as a feeble sort of noise. The <laughs> first thing I'm going to do now is talk to Martin, my colleague who took the various candidates out and see what he thinks because he will have heard them um, closely and he'll have a recommendation or two I imagine. Ash Wednesday marks the start of Lent, a time for reflection and self-denial in the build-up to Easter. Traditionally, churches reflect the sombre mood of the season, and in the Abbey, the vergers, lay employees, are busy making changes to its appearance. The practice is that we cover all the gold and all the um, elaborate things. Here at Westminster, all we do is just cover up the Last Supper scene on the main screen, and then we put another section at the top. Um, ben, can you just go to your right? Yes, please. Yep. Keep going. Does that look all right? Yeah, it's great. We only get to really be up here on the day before Ash Wednesday. It's quite a privilege to, to actually get this fantastic view, which not many people get at the Abbey. It's all part of the, the, the cycle of, of our worship and the church year. And today is involved not only the high altar, but all the, all the altars. If you can see the shrine altar from here, that's uh, lost its colour. And the same for all the other altars in the Abbey. There's no colour, there are reminders of Christ's crucifixion, the implements used at his crucifixion, the spear, the sponge. And again, it's a reminder of how solemn, as Ian said, how solemn a time it is. The cross has got to go behind the hanging. Ow. One of the reasons why you have to do it at night, because it's not very dignified when you see people having to climb over the altar. It's all a stage, life is all a stage. The chorister's religious education is overseen by minor canon Michael Macy. Today, he's explaining the significance of Ash Wednesday. I'm hoping you boys will never, ever sit in a pile of ash, especially not in your school uniform. But if you do, you'll discover how uncomfortable it is because it gets everywhere and it upsets you. And that's kind of the purpose of the part of, of the ashes on Ash Wednesday, to upset us. We're trying to remind you in the, in the, when the ashes go on your forehead of your baptismal promise to turn away from sin and to turn to Christ. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day At Song School, the process of choosing the soloists for today's service continues. Gradually, they, they cut away um, boys. So, like today, myself and Bede uh, didn't get the solo, but then only two boys can get it. Um, but, but still, I'm sure it'll sound, it'll, it'll sound brilliant. I can see you've got your hands here, but I can't actually see any movement, which is fine for this part of the, the, the phrase. But when we get to the next one, you're going to get a bit stuck, I think. OK, so make sure there's actually a physical movement. You feel it going in all the time. So right from the start of the phrase, as soon as you take that breath, and in all the way. OK, let's move on to the next bit. So next line down. For that high line, we'll have either Andrew or Ben. They're both natural performers. They both enjoy the feeling of singing on their own. Um, we often find that boys really want to do solos, or verses as they're often called. Um, but when it actually comes to it, they, they freeze a bit because they're not used to that sort of exposure. Um, but then there are others, and Andrew and Ben are among them, who really thrive, I think, on, on doing things on their own. It's getting quite close to the service. Um, we've whittled down a number of, uh, of boys who, who might be seeing the, the, the solo this afternoon, which is partially for their own sanity, so that they're not worrying about it all day at school. They're not quite sure who's actually going to be singing it at this stage. 
The congregation begins to arrive for the Ash Wednesday service and the lay vicars join the boys for a run-through. At the last minute, Robert Quinney can finally announce who has got the solo parts. Ben will sing the top part and Matthew will sing the part below. Um, they're both very reliable singers and they perform well and Ben clearly wants to do it. Um, Martin felt that, they were, that those two were, were certainly the, the top people. To achieve the maximum acoustic effect, Ben and Matthew will sing with the adult soloists in the organ loft, high above the congregation. The good thing about doing it then is that it's at the beginning of a rehearsal, so I can simply send them off and then get on with some other music. So there'll be no kind of reaction from the other boys. They'll just have to sort of get on with their, their work. So if any of them are disappointed, they're professional enough to understand that we simply have to choose the person who's going to do it best. Everyone likes doing solos, but the main thing is, because we're a choir, we sing together and we're sort of one big team. Because it's such a small community, you almost don't want to push your best friend out of the limelight. You just accept that it's going to be you next time, hopefully, or you will get another chance. It's not the end of the world if you don't get that particular solo. They, they seem to be pleased with it. If they're pleased with it, there's no point in my saying, well, didn't you think the tuning was a bit off on occasional notes? Because they obviously have a sense of achievement, and they did actually achieve something quite considerable. They stood up and did it in a confident way and under a lot of pressure, and not just the normal amount of pressure, but with cameras rolling as well, which, you know, does add a certain uh, extra kind of frisson to things. What motivates me to be here is to write services so that people can engage with God. That's the purpose of any priest, um, and that's what I love doing. I'm very lucky that I have fabulous resources. I've got a great building, people want to come here. Um, we've got a fabulous choir, um, got great organists and organ. So I've got good raw materials to work with. Michael Macy is in charge of planning services at the Abbey. He masterminded the details of the service for Prince William's marriage to Catherine Middleton. The Dean, he's in charge of all the worship, but he's busy with other things, so he devolves the responsibility to us. And we therefore write the services, choreograph them, and make sure they happen, make sure that all the clergy are told what to do and where to go, and, um, and make sure the services happen. Our next big service is the Commonwealth Day Observance on the 12th of March. Uh, and that service, uh, the Queen will be in attendance, as is custom. Uh, and uh, it's a big service where all the Commonwealth nations um, are represented. Uh, it's a celebration of the Commonwealth. We're quite far advanced in the, in the service. We've got the structure. We've, we've got all the participants um, in line. So we know that we've got... Rufus Wainwright and uh, Hugh Masekela. Rabbi Allen, how are you this morning? It's Non here. One of the main things I've got to do today is to follow up on the letters that I've sent out inviting the faith leaders. Those letters went out earlier this week and for the first time ever we're having not only them join us for the service but we're going to have a very informal lunch beforehand because it's a, it's a unique moment to gather uh, a number of faith leaders together to discuss matters that may be pertinent to them. So today I'm going to be following up with some phone calls just to give further detail for those who may not have been invited before and also to check people's dietary requirements to be honest with you because obviously we want to ensure that everybody's very comfortable in being here and 
that what we're giving them to eat is appropriate for them. We've got the uh, royal family coming, uh, I believe the Queen, and beforehand we go round uh, aiding the police, searching for anything that, that may pose a, a threat. Oh, well, they can come, they can stagger down so that you've got contrast of colour then. be able to sing in, in Westminster Abbey uh, solo, just me and the piano, at following the Queen's message, it's a big moment for me, so I'm very honored. Omar, four pieces of high staging, please, and four boards. I'm from South Africa. My name is Hugh Masekela. I don't know how I got invited, but we tried to do a solemn kind of song. And um, they said, no, they know that one. They didn't want any solemnity, so we had to come with something lively. There's a little sing-along at the end, so we hope the people at the end will, a, you know, repeat what I sing to them, and, and, and hopefully the Queen too. I think we're, we're miles ahead of schedule. Wasn't expecting that. Um, I think we're ahead of schedule, but um, we'll wait and see. This is a really significant occasion. It is an interfaith occasion, and it's an occasion at the heart of our national life and of the Commonwealth, and it's one that brings us all together and where we can recognize the reality and importance of God in our life. We feel very privileged that we are the catalyst of that gathering of communities. We're linking with peoples around the world. I mean, what can be more uplifting than that, really? And, and I think we, we all appreciate the fact that this is an opportunity to make those connections and pull people together as a family, really. As well as the faith leaders, the service is attended by Commonwealth High Commissioners and youth representatives from each country. I actually feel quite honoured to be here among 50-something countries um, part of the Commonwealth and um, people are coming from far and wide. This is such a historical place and to come here and be part of such a historical event and also it's like the Queen's Jubilee year so it shows that people from religions, all different cultures, ethnicity, races can all come together as one nation. It means a lot to be representing my country because I actually am in London on a Commonwealth scholarship. I'm benefiting from one of the opportunities that the Commonwealth gives to members of Commonwealth states. Human progress, respect of human rights, that actually drives us to come from all those different faiths, you know, to converge here in Westminster Abbey. And I think it really gives a very powerful message of unity. As head of the Commonwealth and Supreme Governor of the Church of England, the Queen attends two or three services a year here. And her former Lord Chamberlain is now an advisor to the Abbey on matters of national importance. The Abbey to the Queen and to the royal family means an immense amount. Let's recall that her father, of course, was crowned here for her own coronation, her own marriage, and numerous other occasions. Whenever the Commonwealth comes up, the Queen almost lights up with interest. Virtually every time has attended that service with the Duke of Edinburgh. I think that without the role of the Queen over the last 60 years, I do sometimes wonder whether the Commonwealth would have held together at all. The Queen sort of somehow epitomizes it, brings it all together, and it's the Abbey that brings this about and shows this and demonstrates this in its annual service. I'm sitting up here following with the Abbey's Twitter account, um, observing what's going on. I was here earlier taking pictures of behind the scenes, um, that's generally how I use Twitter. I, I provide an insight of, to the world of what's going on, um, which is quite fitting for today's theme, which is connecting cultures. So I'm using technology in the way that it was designed to be to connect people around the world to what's going on inside the Abbey. And it's, it's a real, real success for the Abbey, particularly because we launched the Twitter um, account on Commonwealth Day in 2009 with great success. And so we're continuing to do that at special services um, when we can. I'm <laughs> not
going to check to see if any of the artists are still up this end, which I think I can just see one, and say thank you, and try and clear people out the church so I can go home. Oh, so today was such a beautiful day, and um, it's sunny and bright, and felt just like being in Grenada. <laughs> okay, sir. Uh, take care. Sir, okay. thank you very much indeed. Okay. Thank you. Sorry, you last, do? Last okay, one. <laughs> it went really well. It went really well. Only slightly long. Maybe four minutes longer or five minutes longer than it should have been. Um, but we try to be absolutely precise. So. I'm allowed to be annoyed with myself, um, but no one else is. <laughs> it's not quite over for me yet. It'll be over once I've got a gin in my hand, <laughs> and it'll be over. For the choristers, services, concerts, and state occasions are all in a day's work. Today, they're responding to a personal invitation from the Prime Minister that arrived out of the blue. Just make sure you can see me or you won't be in the picture. Uh, well, we're in 10 Downing Street, um, surprisingly. Um, last week, we were invited to um, sing a few short pieces for uh, some annual um, faith gatherings in 10 Downing Street by the, by the Prime Minister's office. And um, obviously, this is a wonderful thing to do. And we're just going to sing two short pieces for the faith leaders. The Prime Minister will be present and uh, then they'll have a little tour of 10 Downing Street. Now they've drained the refreshment table of its contents. I need to, I need to sort of get them sorted out for their positions, so that's what I'll do now. OK, boys, could you listen up, please? I need to tell you the, the layout of the room that we're going to be singing in. I feel quite surprised that the Prime Minister invited us to sing to the faith leaders because I thought the Prime Minister he doesn't really have time to do this sort of thing, inviting choirs over to sing. Good, good morning, everybody. Uh, a very warm welcome to number 10 Downing Street, and particularly welcome uh, is James O'Donnell and the choristers of Westminster Abbey, who are going to sing two pieces, uh, one of which I think is a world premiere. Over to you. We were told um, on Friday, and I never expected anything over them. I never expected coming to 10 Downing Street, you know, it's just amazing. It's great for you. Singing a solo in front of the Prime Minister, I felt it was. I felt actually quite nervous about doing it. I mean, because um, there were lots of important people in that room, and if I mucked it up, I'd get very embarrassed. said that we sang very well and he was actually quite pleased to see us there and he said it was a real honour for us to be there with him. I thought Downing Street um, would be a bit boring actually, just all politics and stuff, but it's actually quite shocking how big and how cool it is. There's always the chance that something will come along that we're not expecting and we have to be ready for that. Downing Street lunches, daily services and great state occasions are all part of the cycle of life at the Abbey.
Next year, the nation will celebrate 60 years since the Queen's coronation here, when she was anointed in a sacred ceremony to serve the people. To mark the occasion, the Abbey is planning to display the newly restored 700-year-old coronation chair in a more prominent position. It was made by order of King Edward I in 1300 and has been used in coronation ceremonies ever since. This is one of the, um, I think, most pressing conservation challenges that faces the new surveyor of the fabric, is how this fantastic coronation chair gets to be properly displayed. Um, the coronation chair, historically, used to sit facing the altar at the eastern end of the abbey. It has been moved about. Um, in the 19th century, it was covered in glutinous brown varnish. Um, and as you see, it's just been restored. Um, all these incredible carvings have been scratched in by the students of Westminster School over the years. So graffiti is nothing new. But there are still traces of incredible gold paint. And actually, it is, it is a remarkable survival. And you just think that the Queen was crowned here anointed by the Archbishop of Canterbury in the presence of God and her people to serve the ruling of the country. It's, it's incredible that it's here, really. All those in Queen Victoria sitting there. And, I mean, I have my installation here, and walking down the choir to the Dean was terrifying enough. Imagine coming down and being the king, organ playing. Quite frightening. I'm just coming out of this uh, wooden box. Uh, unfortunately, anything you do in Westminster Abbey, there's never a clear wall. Everything has got plastered with monuments. So if you were to move the coronation chair here, you might be tempted to move this monument to a different location so that the chair would sit against a screen wall. So one of the things we've got to do is to work out whether this monument can be moved. Um, if it could be moved, then the chair would sit quite nicely here, looking out towards the nave. Another challenge, because how to light it is above us on that windowsill. There's an enormous great monument. So yet another monument you have to negotiate around. The Abbey's conservation and building projects are always set against the cycle of Christian worship. It's Holy Week, the high point of the church's year. This is one of the great and beautiful treasures of the Abbey. This is the Littlington Missal uh, that was commissioned by Nicholas Littlington, who was one of the great 14th century abbots. And this is the most significant page of the book. And it tells the story at the heart of our faith as Christians, the story of Holy Week and Easter. The big image here in the middle is the image of Jesus on the cross uh, dying for our salvation. There are angels with chalices, cups, uh, catching the blood uh, from his wounds. And obviously that links directly to the idea of, of the, the Eucharist, the bread and wine which become the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and feed us as Christians and enable us to follow in his way. But just around the edge, we have the story of Holy Week, starting on Maundy Thursday night. The arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and then when Jesus is scourged, then he's carrying his cross, and now uh, he's died on the cross, then he's laid in the tomb. So this is now Good Friday evening, then Holy Saturday, which is important for us. It's a, it's a moment of of, uh, of waiting, as it were, between the death of Jesus and the glory of Easter, so between Good Friday and Easter Day. And here, finally, this lovely image. This is the crucified body, but now raised from the dead. So it's at the heart of our story. The festivities begin the night before Easter Sunday with the Easter Vigil. The Easter Vigil is, I think, one of the um, most powerful, dramatic services of the year. Let's just go from the word Gloria, please. We celebrate the resurrection with the Gloria, which we've not sung for 40 days of Lent. Two, three, four. Gloria, 
we sing Alleluia, which we haven't sung during Lent. We, we, the word Alleluia is not sung during Lent. So suddenly all these things which were taken away from us since Ash Wednesday are put back in a dramatic and um, very conspicuous fashion. Three, four. For the Easter Vigil service, James O'Donnell has chosen a piece of music written for the Abbey by Jonathan Harvey. The Harvey is a very different piece to our repertoire because unlike other pieces, there's talkative bits in it. The shouty bits are much better now. They, got, they should make people smile, I think. It should be kind of like an outburst of joy. Musically, the great thing is to capture that drama and capture that, 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 that sort of enormously cosmic thing, the bursting of Christ from the tomb. This is Holy Saturday. We're preparing now for Easter Day. Uh, the flowers are there behind, beside the high altar. The Lenten array is coming down. And so and the altar frontal will be going on. So we're getting ready for all the glory and joy of Easter. We're now fully dressing the altar uh, because Easter Eve, dare I say, it's a bit like having a dinner party. You get all the best stuff out. We work on figures from last year. So last year we had about 400 communicants for the Easter vigil with probably a congregation of 600. So we work on those numbers and probably tweak it a bit. We haven't been caught out, but we've become more aware that there's people that need gluten-free wafers. So um, the round ones are the normal standard wholemeal, but the little white square ones are actually gluten-free. The service begins uh, with the lighting of a new fire and the lighting of a candle from the new fire, a candle that represents Christ shining again in the darkness the risen Christ, and we begin with, uh, with bells and with the organ making a great sound, just to say, you know, this is uh, in sound, we have the celebration of Christ's resurrection. Alleluia! Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia! Alleluia! The piece was commissioned actually for Westminster Abbey. The big sound is supposed to fill up the church and bounce off the walls, and so you can hear it right at the back of the church. Some are very small, and there are two large eggs, sort of dodo size, dodo. I believe. Dodo! <laughs> so, are we ready? On your marks. Yes, let's go! At the end of an extraordinary sequence of uh, Holy Week and Easter, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, uh, then last night, the wonderful vigil service, and now the Abbey absolutely packed uh, once again, vast crowds of people, and so it's amazing how many people want to come and celebrate the joy of Easter. Over the next few months, the cycle of life at the Abbey will continue with a wedding of one of their own. When we had conversations with the dean, he said that we would be very welcome to be married here. The butterflies are slightly swirling around my tummy. Auditions are being held for new choristers. 
there's a lot more to being a member of a choir like this than just singing. And the Abbey receives a historic invitation from the Pope to sing in the Vatican. You're engaged in a mission of vastly greater importance than you can possibly imagine. The Pope inviting us is going to be amazing.